everybody is thinking about the future the same way. So at the top, you know, it's just going to get better. At the bottom, it's only going to get worse. The problem with with presidents is, as incumbents, they're only as good as we feel. The Fed has, you know, thrown bazooka after bazooka after bazooka at this. If the outbreak is is a shock as opposed to a more serious traumatic event, that market should be propelling us forward, and I don't see that now. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The 11th and final conversation in the 2020 Humanar series featured my friend Peter Atwater. Peter focuses on confidence and mood to try and understand and predict market direction. And given how driven we all are by both emotions, his work is one of the most important in my own personal arsenal. Peter and I were introduced by Stephanie Pombo a number of years ago, and every time we've met between then and now, I've left the conversation with plenty of new ideas buzzing around my head. So please welcome my friend, Peter Atwater. I am here. There you are. Hi, mate. How are you? There we go. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. At least you can hear me. That's good news. If you can hear me, I'm not talking to myself into the void. So you, uh, like me, have locked down here, obviously. The last time we met, we were both slightly better kempt than we are are today. (laughs) (laughs) So there's really not much we can do about that. Um, Now, what I want to do, if I can, before we get into what's going on, is just um, give people uh, a little bit of your background and, um, and a little kind of framework as to how you look at the world um, and, and kind of the inputs do you take. And then we'll try to get into how you're applying some of that stuff today. Okay. So in a nutshell, I have two careers. I have the classic Wall Street, work for JP Morgan, work for a bunch of banks, uh, part of my life, uh, helped build JP Morgan's asset-backed securities business, and then worked for a bunch of credit card companies and and ultimately when I turned 45 and my son said dad you're halfway to 90 I decided it was time to do something else Um, I found myself because of my background working with some money managers during the financial crisis a lot of my background was really helpful uh, in understanding how policymakers were likely to respond how investors would behave and did that Um, didn't like the stories, the narratives as to why the crisis started, and really spent uh, quite a bit of time looking at sentiment and more specifically confidence and how confidence impacts the choices we make. And that has really become a template for all of my work is the research that I did around decision making and how our specific level of confidence 
naturally leads us to make uh, good and bad decisions. And so it's been really helpful, um, particularly uh, this, this spring, because so much of what we're seeing is driven by, by sentiment and how uh, vulnerable or impervious people feel to the, to the outbreak. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to make assumptions, but I, I, when I think this through, the whole, the whole confidence dynamic, it seems to me that it, it's, it's always a factor but presumably at the beginning and the end of cycles, it becomes A, much more pronounced and B, much more important to understand. I mean, is that a fair assessment? And if so, what does is, what is the, the position we are in the cycle tell you about the confidence that we're seeing now or lack of? So, yeah, so at extremes, the, the most valuable thing to me is extrapolation because at both major mood peaks and major mood body, bottoms, Everybody is thinking about the future the same way. And so at the top, you know, it's just going to get better. At the bottom, it's only going to get worse. And so that behavior as it's manifesting, particularly financially, um, becomes invaluable. I mean, uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, you know, everybody thought it was going to get worse. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had these big charts of everyone's lowered expectations in terms of the, the S&P. And it's like, this is, this is fabulous. This is exactly what I would look for at the bottom. But, but you know, what's, what's been interesting to me is, to your point, that's exactly what's happened. And yet the data have been even worse than these awful mm-hmm. prognostications. And yet we've seen this rally in Wall Street. So how do you separate out the confidence aspect in terms of people's general feeling about their own well-being, their own prospects, and the confidence instilled by central bank action or, or, or government policy? So I think for investors, the behavior that we saw right after the market's bottom, and remember, policymakers don't lead. They are a great lagging indicator. And when they you know, pile in the way they did, you know, they were basically saying, the low is here, now watch us act. And so that's exactly what they did, both in Washington fiscally and monetarily. And so for investors, I think they have a real challenge because do they look out the window and believe what they see there? Or do they believe their Bloomberg screens where the Fed has you know, thrown bazooka after bazooka after bazooka at this? And I think that given how well fed investors have been by central bank policy over the last decade, it, the natural inclination is to say these folks are, you know, invincible. They have all of the weaponry that you need to elevate asset prices. Why fight them? And so, you know, the people have behaved as you naturally expect them to behave. Well, I mean, but this is this is something that you do. You only really notice these at extremes. Is this something that kind of bubbles along, and it, you're kind of aware of it? But it's when you see, because I know you use Google Trends a lot to try and so, so talk a little bit about how you put, bring these inputs together. So I'm I'm always watching uh, to see what what are people talking about. You know, what's the narrative? What's the story that people are are ascribing to why things are happening the way they are? And you know, narratives are our story that we tell ourselves. So there's no I don't care if they're true or not. I just accept it. And 
so I, I look at those. I, I look at the, the media, um, particularly the print media, Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, all of these. I, don't, I look to see what is news. You know, what did the editors decide to put on the front page? Because that decision is telling us a lot about sentiment. And then I'm constantly looking at Google Trends because we think it, we Google it. And so there, it's really powerful to see where, you know, particularly in, in, in moments of panic, you really see the behaviors. But, but are you looking for exhaustion, Pat? Are you looking for abject despair or complete euphoria for turning points? Or, or, or how, how nuanced do you have to make your, your observations? So I, I'm looking for, you know, turning points that are worth weeks, if not months. Right. So I, I'm not looking for, you know, today versus tomorrow. Um, and there, you know, the, the expressions of sentiment are so widespread. If you just stop and watch, um, you know, people are so busy doing yeah. it that they, they just don't sit and look. But the, the, the mosaic becomes pretty uniform, and that's, that's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, I think we're at one of those interesting points right now where you have, in the last 24, 48 hours, this sense that we're going to return back to normal. Um, and so you, you can see that there's now this extrapolation into the future of normalcy as governors and, and regional teams decide to unlock the economy. That's, to me, that's already been priced in. And so that distinction becomes an important um, indicator of what do we know and what has already been valued in the markets. Well, let's talk about that because I, I agree. The last 24, 40 hours, it's been palpable. There's this sense of, okay, we're, 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 we're at the end of the beginning if you want to mangle the, the Churchill metaphor again. Um, you know, do you think that's true? And are you seeing anything that suggests which way things might break from here? Are we, are we setting ourselves up for, for major disappointment and, and, a, and a slump back when we don't just get this smooth glide path up? What, what, what kind of worries you? So I, I don't like how the banks are performing. Um, you know, there, is, there are few institutions that express confidence the way banks do. You know, everything that happens from taking money to giving out money is a, is a reflection of mood. So I, I'm not thrilled that the, that, the banks are, uh, that the banks are struggling. I'm also not thrilled to see that the Chinese stock market has sort of, um, you know, it, it got ahead early because of the, the timing of the outbreak. But in the last week or so, it's been pretty well stuck. Um, and that's not what I would sort of hope for at this point. It, it, you know, if the, if the outbreak is, is a shock as opposed to a more serious traumatic event, that should, you know, the, that market should be propelling us forward. And I don't see that now. Yeah. You know, what, what I'd love to do, I, I'm going to come back and we'll spend a lot more time on, on today's markets. But what I thought might be a useful exercise is if we can talk about the Trump presidency as a kind of model for how, how your work works, because it's been mm -hmm. it's been such a, a fantastic window into mood and confidence and you know euphoria and despair and hubris and all these things. So 
I mean, if you can take us back to almost pre the 16 election, yeah. what you saw in the run-up, what the what the triggers were, and then what you've seen as we've gone through the administration, and then we'll perhaps take it into what you're seeing for the for November, assuming we have an election. Yeah, the, the coolest thing to me about the, the election was the clear confidence association with Hillary Clinton. Um, she Her popularity tracked Gallup's economic confidence index by the day. The two of them would just move up and down. And so you could see that the worse people felt, the better Trump did in the, in the polls. And when you think about his personality and the, the nature of that campaign, that made perfect sense. But it also meant that as mood went, so would go the election. And so you had this decline in confidence into the election. And you know, thus, to me, you know, the, the migration from candidate to President Trump. Um, what's been fascinating, though, is that for the first 18 months, his correlation with confidence really broke down. And that's probably not to be, unex- you know, to be expected, just given that he was, he was the, the negative candidate. But the problem with, with presidents is, as incumbents, they're only as good as we feel. And so in the last couple of, you know, sort of last two years, you, you, you began to see a very positive correlation between the president's popularity and the financial markets. And, you know, I, I think it's really quite fascinating and to me was a, a, an indicator was that that sense of invincibility that we saw in the Trump White House uh, after the impeachment trial passed, and it was a perfect fit with a major extreme in confidence for, you know, mood overall. Um, But I also think that it was also coincidental with what we saw at Tesla. And to me, Trump and Elon Musk have really similar behavioral patterns. And, you know, it's all about the show. It's all about the hype. And I, and I say this not in a Democrat Republican thing. It's just, you know, what I watch are, are behaviors. And so I think of the two of them as being almost Siamese mood twins. What is good for one is good for the other. And, you know, I, I could also put Masasan in that group as well, because they're, they're all about the show. They're, and, and I think that one of the aspects of the Trump administration and, and, and the associated economy has been what I call the age of illusion, where that show became the, the, the best part of the, uh, of the experience. And, you know, I, I saw it on the retail side with the, the whole notion of the influencer, which to me is the, the retail version of, of the, the greatest showman. And so what, what's troubling to me in all of those gentlemen, and, and it, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're all, they're all men, is that they've each taken illusion to a greater and greater degree. You know, in order to keep the, the, 
appeal of the crowd that the, the two-headed lady had to become the three-headed lady had to become the ten-headed lady and you know adam newman you know arrives with the you know the 50-headed woman with with we work and what you see is incredible fragility behind that you know, these these are these are it's illusion and so i think if mood falls there there's a lot of associated vulnerability that i think may may manifest together economically uh politically uh you know to me if if i'm looking at our willingness to accept or not accept illusion Tesla's a great real-time proxy. Yeah. yeah you, you're basically with Tesla now. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You're trying to get me going. Um, but when you look back through through history, are, are there any, because like you, I, I've watched this, this, this kind of era of the charlatan kind of develop. Um, and I, you know, I thought that WeWork was going to be the beginning of the end of that. I thought it was, it was that emperor has no clothes moment. Um, I expected, to be honest, I expected the, the kind of dominoes to fall much faster than that. I mean, Massa has kind of, it's very hard to find a positive article about him now. He's, he's almost at the other end already. Um, mm-hmm. Trump's hanging in there, presumably because the Democrats are doing such a lousy job, so he's not really got anyone, you know, taking away any of his luster. And, and Musk has gone from, uh, you know, strength to strength in terms of his his just barefaced willingness to push the envelope and he has that kind of invincible cloak of invincibility around him after court cases and all this other stuff mm-hmm. when you when you look back through history are there other periods that we can we can look back at where we did have this kind of cult of personality and it fell you know warren buffett's tide going out and people swimming naked is there is there a parallel somewhere within kind of recent enough memory for us to draw some lessons from it I mean, I, I spent a lot of time looking at the, the era of P.T. Barnum, right. uh, because that, to me, is a, is a very similar social environment where you've got people who are hoping for, you know, something magical to bring them out of their malaise. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I'm forever reading in the media, who, do, who are the analogies that people use? You know, so so both Musk and Trump got P.T. Barnum, uh, both Musk and Trump got Harold Hill from The Music Man. Yeah. So you so you have these very similar um, mood environments of people wanting something magical and fantastic to to re-inspire hope, and so that that post-crisis environment, uh, you know, after the banking crisis, was the perfect sort of feeding ground for that. Yeah. And you saw it with, with Silicon Valley, where you know, we're going to take hotels but make them new in the form of Airbnb. We're going to take cabs and make them new in the form of Uber. And that, that, that sense of, of, transfer, of illusional transformation is a great fit for an environment where people don't feel good. You know, give, me, give me something new to believe in. But, but but that you know that suggests if, if you if you look at where we are now, I'm curious as to what tends to follow the end of such a such a period. Once you reach the end of the age of illusion, what do we tend to get? And also, I, I if you look at the fact that we we feel like we're going into a period where people feel that same way, like the loss of hope, the loss of 
you know, is it possible that these guys could ride this cycle, avoid the down part, and step into another void post-crisis? Or does it, does it take new actors? So I think that, you know, the, the history suggests that these periods we go from that, that holding on to illusion to being angry at being deceived again. And I think that from a social mood perspective, that's what worries me the most right now, is this is now the third crisis in 20 years. You know, 9-11, the financial crisis, now this crisis. And this one is different because we've exposed physical vulnerability. And, and there, you can't, you can't just wish it away. You can't pretend that it's, it's better over here when people are dying over there. And so I think it challenges folks who want to keep the spotlight on them because there's other information that's really pushing, um, uh, pushing the narratives to, to be in such conflict with each other that, that you, you force people to have to choose what you believe. But no, history, history suggests that we, we go from being deceived to being angry. Right. And where does, where does um, you know, central bank policy come into that? Because you know, we, had the, we had the bailouts in 08, and, and, and people were kind of angry, but they, it was kind of this ephemeral, we hate the bankers kind of thing, right? Because the narrative there was that banks blew up the world, which you know, is largely true, but... Um, now we're in a, a period where, as you say, this, this crisis is much more personal, it's much more physical, and it's affecting people directly, not just in, in their you know, triple leverage condo that they own for income, but in their health and their relatives are dying, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, with that being said, the anger that should be directed perhaps towards the Fed now in terms of the bailouts, the CARES Act, all the things that we see as... I was talking uh, the other day about this. The things that we see as finance professionals, um, we understand how the sausage is made, and it, and, and it is just despicable, frankly, what's, what's gone on. That level of outrage, that level of angst that the public really ought to be feeling now, what do you think it takes for that to manifest itself uh, properly? And is, is it just too complicated for people to understand correctly to be angry enough? So I think you're starting to see the anger. I think, you know, we, we've asked people to hit the pause button for, you know, three weeks a month, you know, some even longer than that. And now there is this energy about, okay, get me back to work. Let's, you know, start this up again. And I think that there are two potential dangers in that. One is that we drag our feet. And I'm not, to be clear, I'm not saying that that's the wrong response, but that's going to add to frustration. The other is we don't drag our feet. People want to go back, but there's not something to go back to. And so I think that we're in this, this moment where we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. And that is going to really unleash frustration. The other aspect that if there's anything that I'm 
you know, sort of obsessing about right now, it's the food front. Because the last thing that we can afford in an environment like this is any kind of food scarcity. So making sure that food supplies are robust, that there is the perception of food adequacy is, you know, in all of my notes and comments to policymakers is, you know, you need to redouble your effort on that. We, we can't have people feeling physically vulnerable, financially vulnerable, and now add a third dimension of, you know, what is there to eat? Mm-hmm. So, so what role does the media play in this? Because obviously the media has become um, a, a battleground, really, it, particularly during the, the era of the Trump administration and, and this whole fake news thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I've seen a deterioration in the quality of the media myself, but you've, we've now had essentially all media almost delegitimized because you just don't know who to trust. What part does the media play in mood, both from a public perception in terms of takers of the news, and if you're a policymaker or a Musk, and you're trying to use the media as a PR machine? So I I look at the media as being a large mirror, that it is merely reflecting back on us what we want to to buy, see, read, whatever it is. I am not a huge fan of the, the media's leading us argument because I've, I've seen so many instances, whether it's print media, Fox, CNN, you choose the, choose the network where the, it, it's an instantaneous response. Now, having said that, the, the challenge for the media broadly is that we're, we're rapidly um, coming apart. Uh, you know, we've gone from being global to being national to being state-specific. Uh, I, I think it's really significant that we're in, a, in an environment where governors now matter, not the federal government. And if things get worse, we're going to learn who a lot of mayors are next because they're gonna be the ones who are really at the fore. And, and so we have this huge media void at the state and local level. You know, there, there are very few, um, few powerful local media choices on a, on a local basis. And so what I think you're gonna to start to see is grassroots communication becoming a very powerful way messages are dispersed back out. Um, you know, I, people talk about deglobalization. My, I, I think they're looking at it wrong. This is about relocalization. So this is, this is an environment where the energy, the, the focus, all of the, the growth is going to come in terms of small local clustering that moves out with that. What, 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 how, how should we use the media? How should we adjust? If it is a mirror, how do we rethink the way we use it to try and kind of get what we can out of it rather, rather than get what we don't need out of it? So I'm looking, I, I like to look at where, you know, the large media companies are either together or 
far apart. Um, because you can often see at these turning points where the media is saying the same thing, whether it's Fox or CNN. I know folks would say that's an impossibility, but it's not. Um, you see them coming together. And one of the things that I'm watching really closely is the, the bipartisan media criticism with respect to the Fed. I think, it's, I think it's quite significant to see, for example, the Wall Street Journal editorial page take the Fed to task for getting involved in bailing out the financial markets too much. Um, you know, that, that is a statement that is, is, is remarkable to me that you have this pro-business media journal now being critical of a, of a government entity that has, has done too much. They, they've overstepped, um, and what happens next? Well, it's, got to get rid of this mute thing. Um, yeah, that, that, that's interesting to me because, um, again, you, you can feel the annoyance rising on Wall Street at, at this bailout, right? Because now they're stepping in and buying junk bonds. They've even kind of pissed off the professional market people because you know, even even they think you know that's just a step too far particularly when you're 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 getting this stuff on the same day that that the SBA runs out of the first 350 billion dollars and there's, there's there's nothing left for for main street anymore how does how do you think that progresses from here that because wall street has a very a very easy time in f- being outraged about something and then you know being thrown a bone and forgetting all about it because it's not in their interest to be upset. Is this a change? Do you do you see signals that this is a sea change in mood and that you know, even Wall Street now are going to turn their noses up at this, or is it uh, a passing phase and they'll just get their noses back in the trough? I I think that we'll know very soon when we see the first real test when we have a market decline as we will, and people need to, to choose, do I believe the Fed and it's powerful, you know, if it, if it has the resources or don't I? And if I don't, the, the danger to me is that we have everybody on the same plane and the pilot gets sick. And that's a really dangerous spot to be. Um, you know, the, the Fed has been very successful in browbeating investors onto the plane. But there's a, there's a danger to that. You, you have everybody, you know, positioned in the same way as a result. And not helped by the fact that you know, many investors are on the plane and in a passive vehicle to begin with. Yeah. Well, you know, this, this no, nowhere in, in my view has this confidence been more important than the confidence placed in central banks. I mean, this is something I've been talking and writing about for, for longer than I care to remember. Um, and, I, and I've been amazed at just how long they've managed to kind of maintain that confidence. And I guess Wall Street, uh, it's in their interest to be confident the Fed. I understand that. But even then, you kind of look at this and you think, well, they're reaching the end of the road here. And now, having seen them uh, step into the junk bond market, you know, we're, we're 
we're a, a few conversations in quiet rooms that we will now, thanks to Kezak, never be allowed to hear uh, or to read transcripts of away from them buying equities. So mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you look at that and you think about the confidence in, in central banks, is that something that can go away in the normal manner or is it so inexorably linked to the entire edifice that, that it, it kind of can't go away? People can't lose confidence in the central banks. So, you know, the, the challenge with overconfidence is that we believe invincibility of ourselves, of others, that there is certainty and there is this sense of extraordinary power, you know, power that goes with it. You know, that's, that, that to me is the nature of overconfidence is, is that there's, a, there's an energy and a, a magnetism a power to it that becomes so extreme. But underneath that, the challenge is that it's extremely fragile. Um, you know, you see that in, in hindsight with, you know, Saddam Hussein, who goes from being, you know, dictator to dead. And, and so one of, the, one of the problems with the Fed from my perspective, is it's, it's not boosted investor confidence. It has moved them into an environment where they perceive greater certainty and have given up control as a result. You know, I, I use the analogy of an airplane. You know, airplanes are an environment of, of extraordinary certainty, but, but no control. That's also true of prisons. And, and so the the danger in those environments is that when certainty becomes questioned, you end up with revolt. You end up with a prison riot. And so what, I, what troubles me about where we are today is that potential for a, a prison outbreak where, you know, the moment folks think the guard is vulnerable, you end up with chaos. So, so looking at the markets now um, and seeing this, what to me is a pretty remarkable snapback. Um, you, there are plenty of similar examples in history uh, where you can look at the charts and, and this is not out of the realms of normalcy in terms of a, a, a vicious bear market rally. But for some reason, this one feels a lot more powerful to me, maybe because the news that it's rallying against is so dire. You know, we're, we're talking about death here, I don't know. But when you look at this rally and you look at mood and confidence, what, what, is, what, what are the, the headlines and the articles tell you about this rally in terms of its sustainability or its fragility and, and what a break in this confidence that's, that's given us this rally might mean? Um, what I see is, you know, initially was an oversold bounce. So, you know, just extraordinary pessimism, panic, um, you know, the, and panic is just hard for us to sustain. It's, it's energy depleting. But what I've seen is now a clear connection in investors' minds between how this market has moved up to the Fed. There's no, there's no element of doubt that this, this ascent is Fed dependent. 
and I've never seen such a uniform um, everybody thinks that uh, you know even when we had the, the the Fed intervention in the repo market last fall, there was still this tension of is it QE4 or isn't it QE4 and you know this cute you know debating narratives. There's no debating narrative here, none. And and so that saturating belief that that markets will now move up or down depending on how the Fed behaves is I think unprecedented and is is a as I said, everybody's now on the plane. But that that implies if you kind of think it through in a very simplistic um, way that if the Fed are prepared to throw unlimited amounts of money at this, which they certainly seem to, and it it would appear that they have the backing of the administration now to do that. I mean, that would imply potentially that this market is just now going to keep going up. We're not going to retest the lows. What what do you think would be powerful enough? Because the data points, all the data points that have come in so far. As we as we said earlier on, they were they were apocalyptic, and somehow they were worse than that. If that isn't enough to kind of take away the power of this constant Fed, is there anything you think that could? Yeah, I think that the, the issue will be social unrest. You know, if if I'm a policymaker, I can't immunize financial markets from social unrest, from you know rioting in the streets. And so that makes it untenable to have your Bloomberg screen all green and the streets around you, you know, in turmoil. Uh, Cognitively, the the strain becomes too great. And the the social fear manifests in people, um, you know, liquidating. And so... I think that's the the danger for central banks, not just in the United States. You know, I suspect that there will be others tested before we are. Um, you know, given the the relative vulnerability of of other economies, but that's the that's the risk is that you know you can move asset prices you know, strictly because of your ability to to eat up you know whatever supply is on offer uh, to a point. And the, the danger is what, you know, what happens in the streets from here? What, so that, that's something that we should be looking for is, is signs of social unrest in, in other countries. Yeah. Yeah. I think, as I said, if, if I'm thinking about relative confidence, um, you know, the United States is, is, is much more confident than, you know, certain economies in Europe. Um, you know, I, I think you know what we're seeing in Hungary is important. What we're seeing in Turkey is important. You know, look back at those countries that were um, socially um, in turmoil last year. You know, Lebanon, Chile. Uh, you know, I'd look at Brazil. You know, those those are places where, you know, if social unrest is going to happen, it's likely to happen there first. So when you look at these inputs, um, you know, and 
I've, I've been looking at this and writing about this as well, and I think this whole social unrest thing is, is incredibly important to understand and monitor. What do you think it is that will finally send people into the streets? Normally it's, it's normally inflation, right? It's normally inflation or the end of subsidies. Um, but now we have unemployment as a potential problem. We have the inability to get benefits, et cetera, et cetera. When you look not just in the US but in Europe as well, we have other um, frictions between the north and south. What are the keys you think that people should be looking for in terms of what might trigger that social unrest in, in, in various places? So, so everything that you just talked about, you know, inflation, things like that, the, the, it's not the inflation, it's the associated vulnerability that goes along with it. Vulnerability is what puts us in the streets. It's that sense of powerlessness and uncertainty that we get to a point where I have to do something. So, you know, we think of the Arab Spring as being political. If you look at it relative to food inflation, it becomes obvious why people went to the streets. And so what I'm looking for is, you know, where, where do we see that sense of powerlessness and, and uncertainty and that, that extraordinary vulnerability finally getting to a point where people say, you know, fuck it, I got, I got to do something. Um, and that's, that's where you saw, you know, Occupy Wall Street. That's where you saw the Yellow Vest movement. Um, you know, confidence reaches a point, a, a low point, where people riot. You know, the London riots in 2011. I mean, we, we behave really badly when, when we are extremely vulnerable. And so if, if we start to see groups feeling collectively vulnerable, they will act. And they, and they will act violently. That's sadly what we do. So, so how can we as investors become better at, at finding the signals of mood and confidence that, that should inform some of the decisions we make? Because it's, there's so much noise. There's so much information bombarding us. How, how can we become better at doing this? So I, I think turning off the noise is really helpful. You know, I think you know, we, have a, we have an investor base that seems to be addicted to Twitter. Um, and that, that to me is a terrible place to, to be you know, objective. And, and so it's, it's much more looking, looking around in the real world to say, how do people feel? What are they doing? Um, not, you know, don't, don't look among each other as investors. Um, you know, how are, how are real people feeling? What are they doing? And you know, that, that, you know, that, that told me more at the beginning of the year, as far as it being a top than anything I was seeing in the markets. How so? Just, just, just expand on that for me. Cause I'm curious. Um, you know, people, people didn't, nobody was worried about the economy. I mean, there was a sense that, that, you know, 3% unemployment could go on forever. And you were seeing people behave like that in terms of how they were spending money um, and, and where they were spending money. And so it was, it was the real economy. Now, I, now I will admit that, you know, when my students, you know, showed up in class with their Robinhood apps, you know, trading Tesla options, um, that was interesting. And, 
got even more interesting when they said they wanted to start trading e-minis instead. But you know, th- those, that came at the very top. But the, the real behaviors were, were evident in, in the choices people were making. So, so politically how, and socially. But how do you when, you, when you talk about real people, you know, and, and the U.S. is a perfect place to kind of run this experiment, right? And that is real people in the U.S. are very different in New York and Los Angeles to how they are in the Midwest. So, so how do we as investors get, we, what's, what's the important temperature to take? Because it's very difficult to take the temperature of the entire country. Or should people be reading, you know, Michigan newspapers and Wisconsin newspapers, and how do how do we as investors do that and get the best temperature check? So you know, I, I'm always looking for clues from Walmart, you know, Dollar General. Uh, I'm I'm looking for people, you know, businesses that are, you know, routinely at the at the front um, with the largest numbers of of populations, you know, what, what is, you know, a, a company like McDonald's saying uh, in terms of, of customer interest, um, you know, because, you know, we, the, the, the confidence gap between the financial elite and everybody else is, is so wide today that you, you have to, you have to get outside of that bubble. Um, you know, I, I think, and I think honestly, this entire work from home environment has only compounded the, the problem because, you know, in the work that I, I do, there's a, there's a staggering confidence divide between those who are, you know, having to, to live outside of the work and home environment and the folks inside. And I don't think folks who are working from home have any appreciation for the anger that is building up the, you know, the, 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 those people who are supporting uh, folks in terms of food supply and, and other, you know, sort of the, the, the catering to the, the work from home population. Um, I think the, the caterers are getting pretty close to having had enough. And, and so I go ahead. No, no, please finish. No, I, I just think that corporations are the expectation in terms of uh, wages, uh, addressing employee vulnerability uh, going forward is going to be is going to be significant, and and it just adds another um, headwind to corporate profits. You you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago about at the top the way people were spending money just was, was such a great clue as to the fact that they weren't worried about anything. What do you think happens in the aftermath of this? How, how is confidence going to be affected by the pandemic? How are behaviors going to change? And what, what might that mean for, for markets? So, you know, one of the things I believe is that the economy is going to reopen in the opposite order that it closed. So if I think about the things that were eliminated first, International travel being probably the best example, you know, anything to do with you know, cruises, vacations, you know, all of that will be the last thing to reopen. Uh, you know, major sporting events, major cultural events. Those will be most impacted if only because by the time we get back to them, it's going to be a long time from now. 
I think that the first businesses to reopen will be those that are trusted most on a local basis. And so again, when I talk about the relocalization of the, the economy, and I, and I think this is gonna be true for Europe as well, um, confidence is built from those closest to us out. Those that look like us, act like us, feel like us, are physically close to us, that's where the, the trust first increase in the in the trust network will begin. We're gonna we're gonna cluster with family and friends who we trust enough who appreciate our vulnerability more than anybody else. And that's where that's how I see the economy reopening. Um, and and I don't see big businesses being particularly well suited or attuned to that. They, they, they want to start from the top down, you know, sort of the, yeah, the 2008 response. I've just, I've just, this always happens. I just, I've just seen the time. And I, so I've got, I want to ask a few questions because I, I, I just sit and listen to this whole day. I find it fascinating. Um, we've had a question about, about UBI and that um, uh, particularly reference to this, I think it's called the Emergency Money for the People Act. I was reading about this yesterday. You know, $2,000 a month. Um, until I, I read that it was until um, the unemployment rate reaches pre-COVID levels. Um, the gentleman in the question box is saying it's it's dependent upon the employee to population ratio. I don't know which which one of those it is, but it's basically everybody above sixteen, two grand a month. Uh, what does UBI say about confidence? Is it is it an important way to restore it, or is it a very dangerous thing to do because it will it, it will necessarily lead to overconfidence that, well, I've got two grand a month coming in. This is, everything's fine. So any of these income programs, the, the, the real question is, do people view that as sustainable? Do they view it as having a, you know, providing an adequate bridge to a recovering economy? Remember, confidence is entirely forward-looking the dollar you give me today is far less important than the dollar I think you're gonna give me tomorrow. And so that's the, that's the question with all of these income programs is, do I see it as having a role in the future? Because if I don't, then I have to rethink what my future looks like. So, so what about you know, that, that? That's where the power of social security was so, um, so significant in the 30s is that they were talking about something that would benefit you into the future. So it was a it was a long term commitment that was that was unquestioned. These these temporary and I just used the word to the extent we see these as temporary. That's the problem. Right. But do, do people's behavior uh, change after this materially? Uh, do they save more, which is always I guess the worry for those trying to get the economy juiced again. Are people likely to hunker down? You know, you talk about that local thing, and generally when you go local, you come home, you save, and you, you know, there's a whole generation, people my kids' age, right, who suddenly realize, having grown up in an age of abundance, wow, I've got no job, I've got no savings, I've got no, like, is this going to have a material change on the mindset? Yes. Yes, I think vulnerability is going to be something that, plays out in so many different ways ahead. 
you know, from I'm going to repair as opposed to replace. I'm going to make sure that my pantry is better stocked. I'm going to demand that my supermarket is better stocked. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to want things close by that we have tolerated being at a distance before, but having experienced shortage, uh, you better have that warehouse in the neighborhood. So, so, so now going out from the local thing to the international thing, a few questions about the, the globalist perspective, and that is you know, whether this leads to this kind of moving inward. Does it lead to, to escalations in trade wars? Does it lead to demonization of other countries, nationalism? What, what, what does the future hold for us in those terms, you think? So sadly, falling confidence and xenophobia go hand in hand. Um, you know, people who don't look, act, behave like I do when I have low confidence are either um, immaterial or dangerous. And, and sadly, that, that linkage is, you know, despite millions of years of evolution, that's, we, have, we still can't rid ourselves of that. So things that are at a distance are either going to be enemies or irrelevant. Uh, and I think you've seen that to some degree playing out already with things like the World Health Organization, which at the beginning of this crisis was a vital, you know, vital aspect of it. And now, you know, throw it over the ship. And, and, and that's to be expected. Uh, but I do think that as, as nations have to figure out, how do I address the vulnerability question for my citizens? Um, nationalism, and if not regionalism, localism, is going to be is going to be a real aspect of this recovery. Vulnerability uh, will change how we how we treat each other. Well, what what do you think you would need to start seeing to feel as though we were going to get kind of a smooth transition from from the crisis era of the pandemic? out the other side. Is there anything that you'd be looking for to think, okay, these pieces moving into place give us a chance of avoiding the social unrest, avoiding, you know, the inflationary pressures maybe? You, you need political courage. Um, you need... Oh, we're out of luck then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you need leaders who will stand up and say, here's how we move forward together, uh, not in opposition. Um, and I, and I don't think uh, we, we have that in the United States today. Uh, I continue to think that one of the risks is that we could see a unifying leader, um, not left or right, but up and down, that the wealth divide becomes a means by which someone comes to the, comes for, yeah, to the fore that um, really mobilizes and and draws together the, the, the currently vulnerable. Well, I mean, we, we kind of had a glimpse of that, I guess, with, with Warren and Sanders. I mean, that, that they seem mm -hmm. to be very up and down candidates, but, but they, you know, they were roundly trounced. Is that because their timing was a few months off? Or do you think that now they would have a much better shot at this with that message? Or is it going to be a message that will only resonate once we have, God forbid, 25% unemployment in the US, for example? Um, I, I think part of their challenge is empathy. I think 
part of their challenge is that they, um, I guess I see the, the, the candidate for, for that catalytic environment to be um, an unexpected local leader who is galvanizing. Um, more in the in the style of a, a Mario Cuomo or a, a Michael DeWine, you know, p- folks that are it um, resonate on a much smaller basis first, and grow out from there, as opposed to top down into. Uh, that the environment is is such that that's we're we're more likely to see a grassroots Martin Luther King style. Um, community leader moved up than we are a national leader moved out uh, other than in an authoritarian so option. so kind of a, a mayor pete with a with a different manifesto the likelihood of people actually getting back to normal much faster than people think is that a a, a, a risk a possibility how do you kind of handicap that so I think that the pressure to get folks back to work is going to be immense. And so I expect that we will make some decisions where we, we are overconfident in our ability to, to coexist with the, with the outbreak. Um, and we'll then, as we do after every trauma, take steps back. You know, we, we, we think we can run after we broke our leg only to realize that we have, we have to walk first. Um, but the pressure to get back to work is, um, I would not underestimate that. Okay, so, so last question. Um, there's some questions coming in about, about things like price discovery and fundamentals. Do, do these things actually matter anymore? A, a in the age of this this all-consuming media cycle and be the age of passive investing. Um, do, do such things matter anymore or should we really not pay too much heed to them anymore? Um, I, I look at a lot of the, the, the tools that investors use as um, confirming bias. You know, the means, the, you know, we, we, we don't buy research to tell us not to do things. We buy, we buy research that you know, gives us the support to do what we wanted to do in the first place. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't have a view that it, this changes any of that. Fascinating. Well, Peter, look, we've, we've, we've just about run over our time. Um, listen, thanks, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I've been looking forward to it for a week now, and uh, I really enjoy it every time you and I get to talk about this stuff, because it just, it just, it, it's such an interesting way of, of looking at markets. And, and every time I speak to you, it kind of refreshes my memory to make sure I'm paying attention to, to all the right sort of things. So, so thanks for giving me time. Have a fantastic weekend. And hopefully you and I can, uh, can okay. do this in person at some point in the not too distant future. I look forward to it. Take care. Thanks so much, Grant. Thanks. Bye-bye.